And welcome to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dubin, your host, and it's really nice to have you along with us, along with our guest here on the program as we uh, get set to uh, have a, I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion. I was actually thinking about this interview um, just just a, a short while ago, and I'm thinking, uh, with the, the conversation we're going to have, you know, most of us, and, and I was this way as a kid growing up and into my 20s and 30s, I would like to end my life with uh, all of my original parts. Well, unfortunately, I can't say that anymore uh, because in 96, I got a lens implant. Uh, I don't have my gallbladder anymore. <clears throat> I have two teeth that are missing. Uh, so, uh, obviously, <laughs> I don't get to leave this earth uh, with all of my original parts. There are some people who actually have replacement parts, you know, artificial even. And uh, some people uh, like to use that, the term that uh, people who have um, metal and plastic and all those kinds of things, they're transhuman. Uh, that's the, the new term, I guess, you know, as you're transitioning from human to Android or robot or what have you. Some people want to transfer their consciousness <laughs> into a robot. <clears throat> I know that uh, because some people want to live, I guess, they want to live forever. Well, we do live forever, but it's not the body that lives forever. But while we're here, we would like to make an impact in the lives of not only ourselves, but the people around us. Well, our guest has done that. And uh, he is doing that with uh, his appearance here on this program today uh, to talk about the, the book as well as the experiences that he has had uh, living in the shadow of his heart. And the title of the book is Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. And we're going to talk about uh, the, the work that uh, he is doing today. Uh, he is a two-time heart transplant. His name is Stephen uh, Taibi and uh, Stephen, I want to thank you so much, and I'm so glad that you are here two times over uh, to share this story. To me, this is uh, this is fascinating not only because of your experience having received two heart transplants, but also then the the underlying story that exists. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. And that's something that I find interesting too. That uh, you're one is lucky enough, if it's needed, uh, to receive one transplant—a heart, kidney, whatever it might be—but to have to go through it a second time, um, that that's got to be uh, that to say the very least, got to be unnerving to some degree. Uh, that well, wait a minute, why didn't the first one take? And maybe even the context of what a waste I, I you know this and, and it's not like you did it on purpose okay put it in I'm gonna destroy it and then put me another one in it just it just happens the body just rejects it and so it's like okay we've got to do this again with another one can you share with us that aspect of receiving the second transplant after having received the first one well I received the uh, second transplant because the first one rejected mm -hmm. um, and it lasted uh, almost exactly 15 years. Uh, it was nine days short of 15 years. So my two anniversaries are very close to each other. It was a rejection thing. It was um, a transplant coronary artery disease is what, it, is what got it. It's, uh, it's not coronary artery disease in the sense that you and everybody else knows it. Like if you get coronary artery disease, it's because you have a plaque buildup. With a transplant, it's actually... Uh, um, inflammation and the the vessels inflame and uh then whammo uh it turns into a rejection mm. what was the original and initial uh diagnosis that required you to have the first transplant in the first place well actually if i may can i go back to my story really starts with my heart. That's why I say living in the shadow of my heart mm -hmm. from the day I was born. Uh, ah. The day I was born, I was, um, they had, they, I had, uh, I had three, uh, you know, uh, deformities, minor deformities. And they had no idea back then that that was a problem with the heart. That was the heart was another deformity. Uh, when I was five, I had three operations the day I was born. Uh, when I was five, it was discovered that my heart was grossly enlarged and uh, 
and they rushed me to the hospital. And it turned out that I had what was known as a hole in the heart, mm. which is ASD, atrial septum defect. The, the septum in the atrium has got a hole in it. Back at that time in 1958, the survival rate for um, atrial septum defect operation was 50%. Uh, I went in for that operation. They discovered I had two holes in my heart and I had a, a vein that was plumbed backwards. And they couldn't fix it all at once because they didn't think I'd survive that. They sent me home. I lived through the first operation, obviously. They sent me home for almost a year, hoping that I'd get stronger. I went back for the second operation. And at that point in time, 1959, no one in the world had ever lived through two ASD repairs, uh, period. So my parents, I got last rights. My parents were certain that I wasn't going to come out of the operation, but I was the first. And... Uh, then when I was uh, 17, my heart got unstable. And on my 17th birthday, I had an out-of-body experience. And then um, I was told that um, I would never I would never bake my 20s. Um, I made it through to my 20s and then to my 30s and all that. I got married. I had a television production company. Everything was good. But by the time I was 34, my doctor had told me that he didn't know what I had done, but I had beaten everything and go out and live. And uh, <clears throat> when I was in my when I was in my 40s, I started to slow down, started to gain weight. And it turned out that I, my heart had caught a virus. It had nothing to do with my original problems. Mm. And that's why I lost my first heart, because a virus killed it. Mm. I'm curious about your out of uh, your uh, near, what, what did you refer to it as a near death out of body experience? Yeah. an NDE, they call it yeah. right near death experience. Right. That's yeah. the nomenclature nowadays, you know. Uh, with um, this, yeah, that was pretty experience for you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Share with that experience. Oh. Share us uh, that experience. It what was. Uh, it was. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, when I was, you know, uh, I when I was sixteen at the end, this sixteen, they had uh, told me that I had a year to live, and my heart was going berserk, and. Uh, they brought me in and some things on me. They found out it wasn't a disease process. They found out it was uh, it was uh, the electrical connection to the heart had been disrupted from the last operation when I was six. And uh, basically, my heart was running away. And uh, I was my resting heart rate was 176. And uh, my doctor told me, you know, your heart's just going to blow up at this rate. So I had about a year, he told me. Uh, and then they after they their poking and prodding, and they found out that it was that. They put me on a new drug called quinidine. And quinidine was a derivative of quinine. At this point, quinidine was like the drug. It was, you know, top of the line, brand new stuff. Uh, turn, turned out I was allergic to it. And one in 10,000, they said. And uh, on, my, on my 17th birthday, it gave me a heart block incident that almost killed me. And so that's how that's, you know, that's how it, near-death experience and i guess you want to know about the actual experience is that what you're asking yeah exactly i'd like to know uh what you experienced what you saw heard felt what your what what your senses in that state uh i don't know what the senses are at that point <clears throat> other than the references i have of the six main ones uh but what did you what did you what were you aware of everything um <coughs> I'd gotten up that morning. I was going to take my another my other pill and a half, and everything in my body said, "Don't take it." I was feeling awful. I couldn't wake up, and um, I, I started to leave the room, and uh, I walked into the wall. And my mother uh, saw that she was a nurse. She just thought I was being Mister Sleepyhead because I'm a late sleeper, and she uh, went to go hug me, and I just about collapsed in her arms. And that's what she knew when she took my pulse and it was in the 40s. Uh, and um, she ran and called the doctor, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so she lays me down as per instructions. And the doctor, I mean, and, my, and I knew that I was in for a battle. And I couldn't have my mother sitting there crying because I'm consoling my mother at this point. So I, I asked my mother to leave the room. And miracle of miracles, she did. So I think it's the biggest miracle that ever happened in my life. And my mother just got up and left like a robot. I mean, it's like bizarre. So um, 
but I knew now that I was going to do battle. And all of a sudden, it was like a sledgehammer hit me in the chest. I mean, it made me jump off the bed. And that was the initial hit of it. And, um, and then it was another one and another one, each a little less, but all very painful. And, um, and I'm saying to myself, oh, man, you know, I've beaten death so many times, but it looks like um, it's finally caught up to me. And then the, the, the weirdest thing happened. I heard a click, like, like an old-fashioned wall switch, click, this loud click. And all of a sudden, my body just went boing, you know, it, it, it's like, like a cartoon. And I separated from myself. And the part of me that was on the bed was looking at the ceiling. The part of me that now was above me was looking at me. Mm-hmm. And I could see both things at the same time. Uh, so you wanted to know the senses. I yeah. had two visions. I had two thoughts of two thought processes. I had two imaginations. I had two everything. Um, so now I start rising from the bed and I'm looking at myself. The part of me that's on the bed thinks everything is beautiful. I mean, it felt the, all the pain was just gone. There's happiness. And, and I was, and my, the part of me on the bed was like, well, if this is death, let's go. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And, and the part of me that was floating above was in agreement. I got through my, got to my ceiling, got through my ceiling, saw my mother in the backyard talking to our neighbor. And then I entered this blackness and way up in the right corner was this light that uh, the only way I can describe it, it was, it was, it was so far away that it looked gray, but it was the brightest light I ever saw. And all I wanted to do was get to that light. And um, people say about the tunnel, I don't think there's an actual tunnel. I think it's the light in the darkness. It's, you know, you know, like you put a flashlight in the darkness. It, I, I think that's the tunnel. Well, that, that's what it was for me. I didn't see a tunnel. So I'm, I'm going up and going up. And all of a sudden, I start to slow down. And I go to myself, this can't be good. And all of a sudden, not only am I slowing down, but it's black. And so cold. It's really funny because in the Bible, it talks about how you hear the gnashing of teeth. And I heard the gnashing of teeth. And I'm going, what the heck am I doing here? I, you know, I'm only 17. Uh, I haven't killed. I hadn't stolen anything. I mean, why am I stuck here? And all of a sudden, you know how a cop can part through a, a crowd? That feeling of something parting through the crowd. And suddenly... And the only way I could describe it is that a voice I never heard before, but I recognized, said to me, and it was with smiling voice. It said, no, go back. You're not ready yet. That's the exact quote. No, go back. You're not ready yet. The part of me that was on the bed heard that, but didn't understand where I was. It thought it was still beautiful. And that part of me on the bed, the out loud said, oh, uh, part of me that was up there knew I had to go back. Now, the only way I can describe this is I was laying there with my arms at my side. And how was I supposed to get back? And I honestly believe this is more divine intervention. And I took my arms and I flung them across my chest as hard as I could, which was not very hard, but it was enough. And um, I got that first heartbeat. I got to remember, I've been stasis for a while. That means my blood hadn't been flowing for a while. That first heartbeat hurt every single cell of my body. Every single cell of my body felt that first heartbeat. And that really hurt. And then the second one, and then, and it was like, remember the old car jacks, the old bumper jacks where you, you know, for every, you know, when you're lowering the car, every time you hit the lever, the car went down a notch. Mm -hmm. That was exactly what was happening. Every heartbeat, I went down a notch until I, until there I was above my house, looking at my mother, talking to our neighbor. I went through the roof. I went back to seeing myself. My bed knew I was seeing myself. The bed me knew I was seeing myself, but couldn't see me, but knew I was there and I could see me. And I went back and I heard that click and I was whole again. And that was that it. That was it. Did you have a sense uh, of your immortality at that uh, during that experience that uh, you were you were not your body, obviously, uh, uh, that you that, that that which was floating above your body and having these other experiences was uh, was eternal. Oh, absolutely! I've I've always I've always believed in eternity, uh, and I don't believe in the eternity that most people believe in because most people believe in a very short-sighted eternity. I think mm-hmm. I don't. 
see if to me if if we're eternal beings and i believe we are uh then it didn't start with this life eternity doesn't have a start right eternity is a circle it's not a, it's not a straight line mm -hmm. so that means somehow i've already been before and it means i'm going to be again yeah and, and i just think that uh you know the idea that your eternity starts the day you're born or your day you're conceived, wherever you, wherever you think it is, is not really, um, does not give you an all-powerful God. I think God is way more powerful than that. Grateful Guilt, living in the shadow of my heart. My guest, uh, Stephen Taibbi, and we are talking about uh, his experience. Uh, obviously, we just uh, he just shared with us about his out-of-body experience, and we're going to continue talking with him as we talk here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with uh, uh, Stephen Taibbi and uh, talk about this, uh, uh, this book, of course, uh, Grateful Guilt. Uh, one of the other aspects of uh, uh, of this proceed of this process is the the knowledge that you gain uh, over the years, not only about your condition or conditions plural, uh, but also about uh, human anatomy and physiology. I mean, you you probably have uh, what would be considered a cardiovascular surgeon's uh, uh, education. If not, you know, maybe not the experience in terms of surgery, but I mean, you probably know more about the heart and how it functions and so forth than most people. Well, yeah, that's just the natural thing of my the same way I know about that. And I know about transplantation. I, for a while, I was the vice president of a very large charity for transplantation. Now, but I only know those things because I had to experience them, you know, the way other people know about cancer or they know about whatever other conditions, you know, that's. Yeah, that's just the natural thing from that. Well, let me ask you from a, a more metaphysical perspective, uh, your understanding of why y you <clears throat> um, have this issue, uh, you have had this issue with your heart. Uh, it has been said, and I, I used the example of myself and my understanding of a metaphysical understanding, of uh, both the gallbladder as well as the uh, liver, that they are sort of the seats of anger within the human body. It's kind of where where that resides. You know, when you think about the bile, you know that 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 fluid that that's supposed to dissolve the, uh, uh, the 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 food that's in your stomach and so forth. And I had mine removed. And the reason I bring this up is because prior to the removal of my gallbladder, which was very infected as well as had a gallstone the size of a golf ball, they said, uh, when I would well, let's just say spill a glass of milk. I'd go, no, I gotta clean it up. You know, I mean, I would just get really irritated. After it would be spill a glass of milk, I would laugh. And mm -hmm. I do that now. I, I don't get as, I, I don't have that extended uh, aggravational phase. It's, it's more, oh, okay, <laughs> no big deal. And so I'm wondering about uh, your understanding of why you in this in this lifetime uh, are uh, dealing with the heart and that not just the muscle, but more the spiritual or metaphysical meaning behind that for you. Well, that's exactly what the title of the book is about. And, uh, you know, I don't. I, you know, this whole thing about, you know, if you receive somebody's heart, you receive part of their personality. Mm -hmm. I, I don't buy, I don't buy that in the least. I think it's the drugs. They put you on a ton of drugs. And so like, for example, when I uh, first got my transplant, my first one, uh, I, I love coffee. At, but back then I was drinking four or five cups a day and suddenly coffee tasted awful to me. And my wife is like, oh, your daughter must have hated coffee. And I'm like, no, more than likely, it's these high doses of prednisone that's making me dislike coffee. And that's that's what I, I think that part is. But to get into the other things of this, my whole key is that no matter what happens to you, you have to be grateful for it. That's it. It says be grateful in all things, not some things all things. And 
what I've come to realize is that I think uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Are you a Star Trek oh, fan? Oh, very much so. Okay, so you know what? A, so uh, you know what? A, what what's, what's that? Uh, the room with the uh, where they could make anything in it? Uh, oh, the holodeck. You know, we, the holodeck. Thank you. I think that we're all here on God's holodeck, mm. and each each one of us is a program individual to us, and that we're here because we're supposed to learn something. I'm on this. I'm on my journey. You're on your journey. Each one is just as important as the other. There's nobody's different that way. Mm-hmm. These are supposed to be lessons for me. And last operation, my last transplant went very badly. It was incredibly painful. I had doctors tell me that the kind of pain I was in only, uh, only uh, prisoners of war experience. It was that bad. It, it was brutal. I had uh, five days right after open heart surgery with no, uh, and with no uh, pain drugs at all, not even a Tylenol. If it had been split open in half, being open for three days after a fifteen hour operation, they couldn't give me any any anything for pain. And it, that was brutal. I mean, it's like it was torture. So I had. Five days of that, five days of of absolute agony, of real agony. When I hear somebody go, oh, I was in agony, I'm like, yeah, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you, know, you stubbed your toe, you poor thing. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, people post on Facebook, oh, look, I hurt my hand. You know, I, 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 I people post these little things and I'm, I'm like, my gosh, if I posted what I, you know, yeah. I mean, get, get a grip. So, uh, Honestly, people people don't appreciate things as much as they should. Um, and the way I got through all that pain, the way I got through those that time, I had three. I used three things. I used. I was hallucinating like you couldn't believe. And so when the pain would get unbearable, I would call up the hallucinations and have them entertain me because there was no television or anything in the room. Um, and I was using a, a trick that I had learned to quit smoking many years ago. I quit when I was 19, which was that time passes. And all I would think of is, okay, I am now three minutes deeper into this. I'm three minutes closer to being on the other side. I'm a day closer to being on the, I just kept doing that to myself, saying, saying that to myself. And the, the real thing that I did was I was grateful for the pain I was in. I was actually praying gratitude for being in that pain because I knew that this was part of the lessons that I'm supposed to learn. And it's part of the journey that I've been put on specifically for me. And I was going to say, okay, I'm going to get the best out of this as I can. I remember when I was diagnosed with uh, an infected gallbladder and I was taken to the ER. Um, One of those thoughts that that thought kind of went through my mind. It's like, Okay, yeah, you're feeling that little bit of pain. And I didn't feel a lot of pain. I mean, it was like, oh, this is indigestion. And one of the, you know, it's like the guy is, oh, no, it's not a heart attack. I just bumped my arm. No big deal. No, you know. But the, the, the thought went through my mind, you're going to be on the other side of this before you know it. And before I knew it, <laughs> you know, I was on the other side of it. The right. gallbladder was gone. Uh, I had the 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 uh, pain, if you will, from the incision and so forth. But I had the meds, uh, got through that, and the next thing you know, I'm I'm out of the hospital and I'm back to work and I'm doing things. And boom, it's almost it's almost been a year. It was July mm-hmm. of last year of 2021. The the year before that, it was uh, a diagnosis of type two diabetes, which I beat in a month and a half. You know, wow. so uh, you know that's my perspective as well. Is you know. Uh, Unfortunately, I un- unfortunately I also have to take that same perspective when it comes to taking time off. Like if I'm going to take a vacation, you know, I really want to stay in the moment so that I don't think about you're going to be on the other side of this before you know it, and before yeah, I know, know right. I'm already back to work. But I love what I do, so you know, <clears throat> you know, the transition is is easy because to me this is a vacation too. We're talking with uh, Stephen Taibbi. We're talking about his book. <clears throat> grateful guilt and we're going to continue talking with him here on tell me your story i'm richard dugan your host and 
We bring you new paradigms for a new world, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., as well as 9 a.m. on Wednesdays for our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We also have podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeart, Amazon, Lots of other places on the internet that you can search for us on. I hope you'll subscribe as well. Not so that you can increase my subscription subscriber numbers. I don't care about how many subscribers I have as far as the numbers. I mean, I do, but the numbers are not the relevant part. It's that you get notified when a new program is posted, a new podcast. And the same goes for YouTube, where you can also watch these interviews. Subscribe so that you get notified. The, uh, you know, we're up to 85,000 thousand listens on uh, our podcasts since January of 2018. That's a lot of listens to a lot of interviews and a lot of information that goes out there. Our smorgasbord table gets bigger and bigger every single program, and we hope that you will go to those locations. We also hope that you'll participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, where we ask you to go within and listen to that still, small voice. And uh, we also ask that if you can do so to support the work that we're doing here. We have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours and uh, we ask you to give what you can and we'll take energetic support as well uh, Stephen Taibbi is my guest and we're talking about his book Grateful Guilt and I do have to agree with you uh, Stephen especially about being grateful regardless of the the the, the things that come along like my diagnosis uh, uh, two years ago or my gallbladder issue a year ago or my low vision and so forth. I mean, I was still doing what I'm doing now, even before I got the lens implant in 1996. You know, it's like I look at those things, all of those things, as um, perceived limitations. You know, they're only limitations if you think they're limitations. So, uh, did you uh, ever go through a phase during both the, you know, those years before the first transplant, but also from the first to the second? And, and since, where you just thought, what in the world is going on? When is this going to stop so I can, I can get on with what I want to do? Because obviously you got on with what you wanted to do regardless or maybe even because of uh, your, your, your situation. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, between my parents being told twice and me being told three, time, three times personally, I've been told I have a year to live five different times, <laughs> starting with the time I was five. I was told when I was five, when I was six, told when I was 16, and then both both transplants each year before I had a year to live. So, you know, um, and believe me, I came close both times because it was very difficult to get the organ. Um, God, God bless my donor. Anyway, um, <coughs> my donor, by the way, is David Jason Jacobo from uh, California. Uh, I had to go to California to get my, my transplant because uh, New York is the number 50 out of 50 states for donation. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that something? So um, I keep saying that deliberately because I'm trying to shame New York into doing better. Um, anyway, so uh, <laughs> I always had this thing about they would tell me I had a limited time and I would uh, be like, well, then I'm, I'm going to make the dang best of it I can. And I just wouldn't tell people that I had these, these, um, well, these end dates that they had been giving me. I just wouldn't tell anybody because I didn't want them looking at me with pity. I wanted to just live my life. And I just ran after that life with a hammer. That's what, how I describe it. I just, I just went after everything. I mean, I wasn't allowed, to, I wanted to be a pilot. That's the one thing I wanted to be as a, since I was a little kid. And uh, I mean, as soon as I was old enough to think, I wanted to be a pilot. And of course, with my heart history, I no doctor would sign off on it. And then I found out you don't need a medical to be a glider pilot. And I became a pilot despite my doctor's wishes. And and I owned my own airplane. And uh, you know, I just I just did what I wanted to do. And I always thought that that's one of the reasons why I lived, because I wouldn't give in to what they said was wrong with me. That was my big, that was one of my biggest strategies. By the way, my book is really about how you deal with things. It's, it's you know, this, a lot of the strategies I use to survive 
Uh, I don't want people to necessarily use mine. I want them to read the book and understand they can use their own, mm-hmm. you know, but get strategies. And I did. Str- I do strategies for everything. I don't go to a doctor's office without strategies. I, I did my, my career with strategies. I did. I do everything with strategies. They seem to work for me, you know, and um, I mean, the fact that I was a glider pilot, the fact that fact that I had my own airplane was to me beyond belief. It was just like the best thing ever, you know? Yeah. Well, believe it or not, you and I share that same uh, vision, that same dream, because as a kid growing up, of course, following the space program in the 60s for me uh, as well, and always thinking, boy, I'd, I'd love to learn to fly. That would be so cool. But I know that'll never happen because you got to have good vision for that. And I was legally blind. So that's not uh, going to happen. I get my yeah. lens implant. I moved to Santa Barbara. The next thing you know, I'm getting uh, I'm getting uh, 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 flights by people who have planes here. They just say, "Hey, you want to go take a flight?" You know, they may be on a program and they own a plane. Hey, I'll will take you for a ride. You know, we'll go off to Camarillo or up to Santa Maria or whatever. We'll fly over the mountains where you live and this and that and the other. And then the next thing I know, uh, one of our programmers, uh, one of our guests, has a flight school for the youth to teach them how to fly. It's your log book, your your flight book, and I have with that organization one hour flight time. Then I have a good friend here at the radio station who owns his own experimental plane, Mm -hmm. and he's flown me around quite a bit. And then when we flew to the Camarillo Air Show back in August of 2021, uh, he let me fly and then added uh, an hour or so of flight time to my flight book okay my log book so mm-hmm. i'm slowly ever so slowly but it doesn't matter to me when uh, uh you know getting that getting that airtime and learning more and more about how planes the specific ones i might be in are operating so it to me it's it's just fascinating and i would i mean is it as quiet as they say when you're up in a glider no no because you got the wind no. going fast you got the wind wind is roaring past you yeah. yeah it's not as loud as an engine i mean yeah. one of the jokes at an airport that has a glider port is that you can always tell the glider pilots from the power pilots because the glider pilots can hear <laughs> you know <laughs> so, it's not quiet but it's not like a like a like a piston airplane you know which is very loud right. but um but no um it, but it is for a guy like me who's always been in love with light, I was in television. One of the main major things I was, I was a, a, a lighting director, a director of photography, and that's all about light. And mm-hmm. um, I just love light. And I can tell you, you know, from 7,000 feet in a glider at certain times of the day, the lighting is just something to behold. And I found a lot of peace. I mean, I was in television. I had a very high pressure career. And uh, I would get into it. I would get to my get to the airport. I, I kept the trailer, <coughs> kept the trailer at the airport, so I wouldn't have to drive back and forth. Uh, so I could spend two, three days there at a time. Sometimes five days in a week, I'd spend at the airport uh, and and just you know get up there and decompress. I wouldn't even bring my I wouldn't even bring my uh, the headphones or my radio because I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was done talking. As a director, I mm-hmm. you know all day long I talked. I just wanted to be in the airplane, quiet, and and just enjoy. You know, yeah. Stephen Taibbi is my guest. His book is Grateful Guilt, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is really a pleasure to have uh, two-time transplant um, recipient uh, Stephen Taibbi with us here on the program. Talk to us because I want to get into this aspect of it, obviously, because this is also part of the book. Uh, and part of your experience is your relationship. And again, I ask these questions uh, more from the standpoint of, of a listener. Uh, did you get to know the family of both donors? No. Um, I, I, I wrote my letters for the first donor. Uh, I, I knew a little bit about him because, that I was able to glean from the various people all around, but everything is really kept secret. And uh, I, but I wrote a letter of thank you, and then I wrote a second letter, and I think I wrote a third. I'm pretty sure I wrote three, but they never responded. It was um, a wife 
a wife with children and she never responded. And I was like, okay, that's what she wants. It's probably too painful for her. So, you know, I stopped writing letters. I never heard from her. Um, <coughs> the second family, I wrote my first letter when I was like home from the hospital. I had an apartment in LA, uh, I'd say five days. I just had to get that thank you off. And uh, I didn't hear back. Percent families that receive letters respond. And um, so I knew that I, I, by now I had known the statistic because I had been so involved in, in all the organizations I worked in. <coughs> and well, well under 3% of the families meet each other. So the fact that I was just, I just wanted them to know that I was grateful. That's all I really wanted them to know. Um, and then two years after I wrote my first letter, I got a letter from the mother, from Susan Giacobo. Mm. And, um, and her husband is David Giacobo. The son who was my donor is David Jason Giacobo. And um, after I got that letter, I was, uh, and by the way, you can't just write a letter. You have to write the letter to the OPO, the organ Pro procurement organization that arranged for you to get that organ. And the letter has to go to them. They have to make sure it's sanitized, that you don't have any information about who you are, where you are, all that. Uh, it has to be completely anonymous. Uh, and I, I had done that. But uh, and then when I, they called me and they said, we have a letter for you. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah. And when I finally got it, it was a ha beautiful handwriting. The, Susan has gorgeous handwriting and um, it was on lined paper. And I remember tears rolling down my eye, holding holding this letter to my heart to David, to David. Go, David, this is your mother. Your mother loves you. Your mother's here. This is your mother. And, um, and we started um, chatting on um, – because uh, they don't want you to start talking to each other right away, the OPOs. So it took us a little while to get to the phone level. And then I went out to L.A. to do a, um, a radio interview, and um, and I made sure that we all met. And it was unbelievable. It was just really – they're, they're a um, Hispanic family. I'm Italian. So there's a lot of similarities there. You know, family is everything. And, you know, it's so there were, I don't know, 30, 40 people there, you know, when I went there. Uh, and everybody was just so happy to see me. And I was so welcomed. And, uh, and they, um, uh, the ex-wife told me that uh, I was family now. And, uh, and that's how they've treated me. And we stay in touch. We talk occasionally. And um, it was really something. But it was, but the real thing that was, we know they'd want to listen. So my wife is a nurse and we brought a stethoscope. And, and uh, they took turns, you know, listening to the heart. And, and um, odd thing was, though, that only, only women listened to me. Not one man listened. So that was bizarre to me, but that's what it was. And uh, the mother listened, his sister listened, um, his daughter listened, his aunt and a couple of other women all listened. And the mother listened twice. Um, and she was very watching her listen because, you know, it's a stethoscope. So yeah. I'm holding the stethoscope and her, her head is, you know, like just a, two feet from me. And um, so I'm just looking right at her, but her eyes are closed. And when she when she got the beat, you saw her head just going like this. And with this little smile on her face, and she was like, you know, you could tell that she recognized it. And it was really it was really something to be able to share that with them. It's fascinating, quite honestly, from both a, a biological uh, perspective as well as a spiritual perspective, uh, the connection uh, that you now have, of course, with a whole another group of people that you didn't even know existed until you received that uh, that the donor heart. Uh, and I'm wondering, I, I, I don't know if you've done this yet or not. I have, uh, but uh, I'm wondering how your DNA would show up these days if, if there's been any impact in that regard uh, to uh, now you say that your new heritage, so to speak. <laughs> no, you're right. No, they, they do say that his DNA is now in me. It's not I don't think it's combined, but right. they can detect it. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. I want to hear something really bizarre. 
uh, the mother was separated um, from her sister at, at birth or something like that. And, uh, you know, and she didn't even know she had a sister. She did, she thought she was Hispanic her whole life. It turns out she's she's only half Hispanic. Um, one day her doorbell rings and um, it's her sister. And she and she says, I'm your sister. And they they connect her sister donated a heart, her son's heart a year or two years before Susan did. And um, so I've actually met this guy on Facebook. And so in a strange way, he and I are cousins. Mm. <laughs> the guy who received the sister, the sister's son's heart. He and I are in a strange way. Are cousins now wow and that's kind of strange right there it is right but so you're right the family thing is yeah the the communicate the, communica the co community uh, aspect is it just it it goes deeper and deeper and deeper it's it's really kind of cool Stephen Taibbi is my guest here on the program we're talking about his latest work which is um, uh, grateful excuse me, grateful guilt, as we talk about uh, how he was uh, living in the shadow of my heart. And uh, this book is, of course, also available uh, in uh, audible format. Did you uh, narrate it or did you have a, a, a reader? Oh, I narrated it. I can understand that. And and you've got my publisher wouldn't let me I, I, I actually had a professional actor who was willing to do it, you know, because a friend of mine, mm -hmm. right? But my publisher's like, no, you're doing it. So <laughs> that's how that happened. Well, it's forced into if it. You can get the, if you can get the author to read their own work. But not all authors uh, necessarily have, A, the temperament, let alone maybe the voice uh, or the patience, because it, uh, it is a very uh, time-consuming process, I know, because oh, I have to yes. produce audio audibles uh, matter of fact uh, when I had when I was married uh, for the first time even before I was married the first time uh, I was recording books uh, matter of fact the book that my wife my first wife and I met through was uh, a book I recorded for a radio reading service for the blind and the visually impaired it's called Sun Sounds Radio Reading Service a book by Og Mandino called the greatest miracle in the world I read that I still book. have those recordings that are now 40 years old and I go back and I listen to that every once in a while. I go, boy, that's a young fella there. <laughs> but um, your book is on Audible. It's available <laughs> at a lot of different outlets, including Amazon, of which I happen to be uh, a subscriber to Audibles. And uh, uh, so I'll take one of those credits and I'll uh, get a copy of your book through through Audible and, and listen to that. Now, Audible is the one place you can't get my book. Oh, no, you're kidding. Who play? Uh, Kobu, scribed. I, I don't have my glasses on. I'm sorry. Scribed, chirp, Apple, Nook, and High Books. Right. We'll have it. Okay. So all we, right. Well, Google we'll, uh, Play is probably the most. You know. Yeah. Well, we'll I, I don't understand video. what's going on with Audible. Uh, I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. It seems right. uh, like it ought to be there. Two-time transplant patient Stephen Taibbi is my guest here on the program, and uh, we are here on a program called "Tell Me Your Story." I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and um, it's very interesting. I will tell you that on my driver's license, uh, I have the box checked for organ donor. I don't know what parts they they could use or would need. I've tried taking care of myself. I'm curious as to your uh, your position. Obviously, you are a transplant recipient, mm -hmm. an organ donor recipient. Uh, but uh, are you capable? Of, well, obviously, once we've passed, uh, we're capable. But I know that, for example, the only organ I can think of. Well, actually, there are three organs I can think of that we can donate while we live. Uh, a kidney, mm -hmm. a portion of one's liver, and I have heard it said that you could actually donate a lung. That's true. And still, still live <laughs> a, a great life, and so forth. That's true. Uh, you can live on fifty percent. That, uh, that that you've been uh, you've been uh, 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 a, a strong supporter of, uh, from your perspective as well as being an organ donor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I used to be the the vice president of Transplant Speakers International. And uh, that, that, you know, donation is a big thing to me. I mean, I, ca I can't understand why people don't donate. And First of all, most people, even if you've checked the box that you want to be a donor, you won't be. 
most most times people die in a way that they can't be an organ donor. That's just right. the fact of the matter. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons. First of all, there's not enough people signing up, but there's also the fact that it's a very specific way that you have to die for you to be an organ donor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there can't be disease processes and, you know, it's really traumas and sudden death kind of things, you know, an aneurysm kind of a trauma. So that limits the organs right there. But I'm a big proponent of organ donation. I am my 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 license says I'm an organ donor. Uh, it, when I was right after I had my my first transplant, I met a man at the Columbia Hospital, which did my first transplant in New York City. Uh, they had just done the first transplant with a heart that had been transplanted. So. I met the guy and he and I were waiting to go into a cath room at the, you know, after each other. And uh, he had a heart that had previously been in somebody else before it had been somebody else. He was the third person to get that heart, the, the original, right? A donor got it and now he got it. And I'm like, that heart must be going, now where am I? <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, it's so I'm hoping, I'm hoping. I'm hoping they can donate my heart. I, you know, I'm hoping they can donate whatever they can. I want to go. I want to be buried as a, as an empty cannoli shell, you know? <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's very good. Let me ask you about your uh, philosophical underpinnings uh, as you were raised and then where you are today. What, what, what How do you mean? Exactly. I just want to make sure I'm right. Sure. What were you raised as? Uh, as- I was always raised as, Catholic. Okay. Yeah. And, and where are Italian. you today philosophically in terms of your understanding of uh, the universe and uh, where we go when we die, when the body stops functioning, and and who's really in control, shall we say, that those kinds of wonderful, big philosophical questions that man has been asking for centuries? Well, I'm certainly still asking, but... Uh... After my first transplant, and I used to go to church. When I was in college, I used to go six, six, seven times a week to church um, because it was because I was I was working a ridiculous amount of credits. I was working three jobs, seven days a week, and whatever the credit load is, I forget that now. My was higher than almost anybody's, and I was doing all that at once, and I found that helped me. But uh, once I got the transplant. And I, before I learned anything about my donor, I realized that I got this transplant in New York. And in New York, it could be from like 130 different countries, this person. Uh, and so this person, they could be Muslim, they could be Jewish, they could be Italian, they could be Japanese, they mm-hmm. could be, you know, they could be anything. Yeah. You know, it's New York, for gosh sakes. And, um, and all of a sudden, the whole idea of the way I had been thinking about religion didn't seem right. And then when I was in transplant speakers, which I entered into almost immediately after my first transplant, we did a video and we had all these clergy come. And because people think, oh, my religion doesn't allow transplantation. No, your religion does allow transplantation. You're just looking for an excuse. So, I mean, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And um and we had this Protestant minister look at our list of um, of who was speaking. And we had probably, we had Presbyterian, we had Protestant, we had Baptist, we had se- several others. And he goes, you know, these are all Protestant religions. And I go, yeah, I know. But each one of them thinks they have to listen to the, you know, their own person. And do you know how many Protestant religions there are? And this was 20 years ago. He goes, you know how many Protestant religions there are? Right. I was guessing. I went, I don't know, 200. He goes, 2,200, 2,200, no, 2,200, I think he said, 2,200 registered Protestant religions. And I'm like, holy gosh, (laughs) you know, and that just made me realize that the whole religion thing to me, I was putting God in for me. This is me. I'm not saying for anybody else, this is me, my journey. Mm-hmm. I was putting God in a box by having to have him be in a religion. I actually now think my wife thinks I'm going to, to you know, the other place now because of this <laughs> and her whole 
whole family thinks you know, that pray for me and light candles for me. <laughs> They're all Italian Catholic, you know, and, right. and they just think I'm just going to, to the H word. And, and they, uh, me having to go to church to, re- to, to uh, worship God is very limiting because every single church when that minister had said to me i left out the most important part he said there are all these religions you know every one of them thinks you're going to hell unless you do it their way and that really struck me and he's right and every religion thinks you're going to the worst place if you don't do it their way mm-hmm. they're all like that and i i was like yeah he's right he's right and that made me think that well, I don't believe that kind of thing. I think, you know, a God that could give me a heart from from any religion on earth, because it could have been that, you know, I don't think he thinks this way. And so now I don't go to church because I do that actively as a way of believing in God. I I, I think that going to church makes me think of God in a smaller sense. And I think of God in the, in really large ways. I mean, I, I, as I already said, I don't think most people really believe in an all powerful God. It it scares the heck out of them to really think of an all powerful God. I mean, just the very fact that people say I need all of my body parts to go to heaven tells you that they don't believe in an all powerful God. Yeah. Well, I, I had an experience regarding my sister uh, who just who passed back in March of, uh, of this year uh, in that uh, I knew a little bit about where she was coming from because we were all born and raised uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, but she uh, went on her own way with her husband off to, at that time when they first were together and getting married, uh, went off to a very fundamentalist uh, form of uh, Christianity, Church of Christ, and I knew about that and many others because I worked for a Christian radio station for 15 years, and I was exposed to all of these different sects, as I like to call them. And um, so when I found out that my sister and her husband had decided that she was going to be cremated, I was I was a little stunned, going, Really? Okay, I mean, it's great for the environment. Okay, that's fine, you know. But, you know, most most people, uh, most Christians, they don't want to do that because they want to make sure the body is, so to speak, still intact when the rapture comes and all those kinds of things. So I was I was pleasantly surprised uh, at at hearing that, in, only from the standpoint that, wow, she she's I I've never really had a deep philosophical conversation with her in the last couple of three years uh so she's she really has come a long way i'm so i'm proud of her for that uh, because that's what we're trying to do on this program is expand people's uh, horizon so to speak and getting giving them new things to think about i'm not necessarily saying that either you neither you nor i agrees 100 percent with one another uh but the whole point is that we're all we're all searching we're all asking questions we're all looking for answers and uh, we're going to get, uh, uh, we're going to uh, make adjustments to our beliefs as we move through this life. I even said to my sister once, uh, during a Thanksgiving, uh, uh, during Thanksgiving one year, we were standing in my mother's kitchen at her home, uh, where we were all raised, uh, having this philosophical conversation where she was challenging me about my salvation. And I says, well, but my beliefs of uh, yesterday are not my beliefs of today, are not my beliefs of tomorrow, because I'm still alive. I'm still learning, growing, experiencing, etc. At which point my mother threw us out of the kitchen because she says, this is not the place for this conversation. <laughs> That's so funny. That's but, really funny. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we all come to uh, uh, an understanding, but it has to be for ourselves. And like you, and you said this about what you just shared. I say the same thing. I'm not putting anything that I believe on anybody. This is strictly for me when I share from my perspective, my philo- my philosophical underpinnings. Uh, if you like it, fine. If you don't like it, fine. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me because they're mine. And it's a personal, I loved it when I was working for the station, uh, uh, Stephen. They always talked about how it was a personal relationship with Jesus or a personal relationship with God. And then they'd come and challenge you about your personal relationship and yourself. Yes. Wait a minute. 
You just told me this was my relationship. It was personal. It was private. It's none of your business. How is it that you are able to come along and tell me that I am not doing it right? And uh, that's part of where I started going off and asking the heretical questions. I got to tell you, what you just said really resonates with me. And I, I, you just said it very well. Uh, you know, the thing about they have to be whole. I mean, because I'm, I, I'm, I was in the business of, you know, talking about transplantation uh, and uh, and getting people to sign up and they give you all these excuses, they, they, all these excuses. And they'd say, well, I have to be whole. I have to this, that I have to that. OK, so you don't believe in all powerful God. I mean, so so if a guy loses his leg in a war, in a jungle and the leg is obliterated, all the insects ate it, there's no chance of that leg ever being back. Mm -hmm. So when he gets to heaven is this, are they do they call him stumpy i mean you know <laughs> if you take it out if you take it to to a point of where you know so okay okay so you've been buried the rapture happens a thousand years from now or a hundred years from now what do you think your body looks like yeah. right ashes to ashes dust to dust i mean that's what you're supposed to believe right mm -hmm. and that is absolutely what happens i mean that's right the, your body is going to be completely deteriorated. So, so what do we all look like, you know, skeletons or, you know, what, what so what they, they, they don't, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. They, a lot of people conveniently don't really want to challenge their own thoughts about an all powerful God An all powerful God. First of all, I don't think it has anything to do with bodies. I think, you know, when, uh, I mean, if you want to go by the Bible, he says, I am the light. Mm -hmm. I am the body. I am the light. I think we're all light. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think that that's what we're all really striving to be. And even if we need the bodies, the, per the, the God that could create this huge universe, he can't recreate your body if that's what has to happen. Mm -hmm. They just don't. I'm telling you that I find that people conveniently, because they don't want to think about certain things, don't really believe in an all-powerful God. Yeah. It's very frustrating to me. Well, well, that for me, when I would ask these, what I put in the, under the category of heretical questions, and if I, I would wear proudly the uh, H on my forehead, if that were the case, as a heretic, I would wear it proudly because none of the, uh, many of the answers that I was given just did not make any sense. And just like you, I, that, you know, you're not thinking this through to the, to the, its final conclusion, and it doesn't make any sense. Just like what you said, especially about death. Paul says it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Wait a minute. Could we back it up to the gospels, please? Uh, could we talk about the story of Lazarus? Jesus raised him from what? The dead. Was he dead or was he not dead? Or is the rule that Paul laid out not correct? Or are there exceptions to the rule? And if there are exceptions to the rule, then what is the rule? Is it or isn't it? I'm, you know, and you had an NDE, a near-death experience, or an out-of-body experience, or, or there are others that I've interviewed who have actually been dead for a number of minutes or even hours. I've actually had two. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and <coughs> here you are. So, in the first death, did you did yeah. you experience the judgment? You know, I mean, you know, and it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And so that's why I ask these questions and I go back to that, uh, the disclaimer once again, it's on me. Okay. I'm asking the questions because I'm curious because I would like to know, maybe not necessarily the answers, but at least I'd like to know that the answers I have was given as a kid growing up in catechism aren't the truth. That, that they were just giving this to me to placate me, to shut me up. And they're saying, this is what you're supposed to believe. Well, I'm, I'm not there anymore. I am now uh, 62 years old, and I'm sorry, but I'm a question machine now. <laughs> I, I, I really hear you. I mean, I have to keep thinking to myself, why am I the one who's still here? I mean, I've been sick my whole, whole life. I've been, I've been healthy in large sections of it, but I was born, my head of my first three, I have five and five, five and six, I had major operations, you know, I've had two heart transplants. And yet, I, I just turned 69. 
why am I the one who's still here? I have two high school friends who, while I was waiting for my second heart transplant, died after their heart transplants. Mm. And they had been healthy their whole lives. You know, so why am I the one that's still here? So, yeah. you know, I'm always looking for what is it my what is my purpose here? Because I think that that's a question that we all should be asking. I mean, you know, we're, we're um, we have responsibilities in this life of, of of learning and becoming something. And I still not sure, you know, I mean, I wrote the book because people told me you have to write this book. It's not just my story. I use my story as an analog, but my story of how I got through all those things, including bullying, including all sorts of things. How did I get through them? And people say the way you did these things, you have to tell people. So I wrote this book, not for if you're waiting for a heart transplant, if you're taking care of somebody with a profound illness, really meant to help people. And by the way, it's a pretty entertaining book to read. So uh, I hope I did. I, I hope I did. I've, I've had, uh, I wrote, I wrote this book only up to my first heart transplant. And now I've had a second heart transplant. I just didn't want to write another book that was exactly like the first book. I'm still working on, actually, I think my next book is going to be called um, I'm Still Not Dead, How to Live When Life is Trying to Kill You. So I think that's <laughs> going to be my, my next book. But um, I love the title. That's a great title. You too. So so I think that's, that's going to be the next book. But the first book is already along those lines. The second book will really take you there. Uh, but um, you know, but what is what is my purpose? What I told you, two of my friends died of heart trans after heart transplants. Their first heart transplants within a year. Uh, that year that I was waiting for my heart transplant the second time, five of my high school, and I kept saying to myself, one of them burned to death in a car. They heard him screaming, and I'm saying to myself, why? Why am I the one who's spared? Why are these people going? You know, most of them had never been sick in their lives until they got sick and, and it took them. But it's a real conundrum for me. And it, it, it's uh, it's something I question myself every day, but I'm trying very my best to make sure that I'm learning, that I'm, I'm, I'm in God's hollow deck, doing what he wants me to do, learning what he wants me to do, being grateful for everything then that's the best I could come up with. And I have to tell you, the title is perfect. Grateful Guilt. I understand it. It makes perfect sense. And I hope people will get a copy. What website do you want us to send people to so that they can not only get a copy of your book, but also learn more about you and the work that you do? GratefulGuilt.com. And also a lot of people get to me at, uh, uh, at Facebook at Stephen Taibbi Author. On Facebook, I'm Stephen Taibbi Author. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Okay. And uh, we're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, not on Facebook. I've got a Twitter account. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm out there as well. So, and I have to tell you, that's amazing. Uh, no matter how different we are, there are always these similarities in stories. And uh, yours and mine are, are similar up to a point. Uh, and uh, that's Kind of what makes this a fascinating discussion as we continue talking with Stephen Taibbi and Grateful Guilt here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we have really enjoyed having you on the program, Stephen. Stephen Taibbi, author of Grateful Guilt, uh, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. And I want to uh, thank you so much for giving us the time here on the program and uh, would love to, uh, <clears throat> to connect with you again and talk with you more about the work that you are doing to try to not only help people to uh, possibly to at least put themselves on the donor list not to receive mm -hmm. necessarily but to give uh, once the the body has given out and again as you've expressed uh, and made it pretty clear you know certainly there's a very stringent uh, 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 vetting process and I understand that um, but at the same time um, to put yourself on that list I think is a, is a big deal because you know, what am I going to do with the book? Uh, well, no, no, you can't use it because I may, I may come back for it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I always like to say, what do you think God would like you to do with it? He's the one who gave you the gift of life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So do you think he'd rather you bury it or burn it or pass it on? 
I pay it That's forward. how I say it to people. <laughs> pay it forward. <laughs> yes, exactly. Pay it forward. By the way, I have to say that you, you've asked some, some really, really fascinating questions that I've never been asked before. This was really enjoyable. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I do have three more questions. Three of the final okay. questions I like to ask all of my guests. You may have answered them uh, during the program, but I like to ask them directly. Uh, but before I do, I want to thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., 9 a.m. on Wednesdays. That is our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are not only on the homepage of richarddugan.com, but also on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations on the internet. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. And we ask you to subscribe only so you'll be notified when a new program, a new podcast or video cast is posted. We also ask that uh, if you can do so to support the work that we are doing, we have a PayPal account. It's there for your security as well as ours. And we'll take energetic support as well. And please participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision the 2020s, where we ask you to go within and listen to that still, small voice. You know, Steve and I sometimes uh, get to this point in the program where it's like, darn, I didn't ask him about or her about, so uh, well, what's your inner life like? And do you listen to that still, small voice? And do you follow those promptings? And we're going to have to have you back to talk more about that because I know that uh, you have had, it sounds to me like uh, during the processes of the first and second transplants, let alone prior to that, that you've had a lot of time to sit there and listen to all kinds of voices. But there's only one that really matters. And uh, we will have you back maybe to talk more about that. I'd love it. All Thank right. you. All right. So with that, we're going to ask uh, you those three final questions, the first of which is, who is Stephen Taibbi? Stephen Taibbi is a retired double heart transplant and is um, just enjoying living and not working as hard as I used to, but about to start up again working hard. <laughs> so that's who I am right now. I am a very content person. And I, if I had one quality that I hope people would say that I had, I hope it is that they think I was grateful. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want to help people get through times that they're finding as difficult and, and let them see that everything, you can get through everything and just give them the tools that they need um, to enable them to accomplish that. That's really what I would like. And finally... What is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is to be as helpful to other people and to love as many people um, as I can while I'm still here. Well, Stephen Taibbi, I want to again thank you so much for being with us on the program, sharing with us your story and Grateful Guilt. Uh, that is the title of the book living in the shadow of my heart and go to gratefulguilt.com is that correct for people yes. to find out more gratefulguilt.com folks we will be linked to that website on our podcasts and video casts so that you folks can find out more and until our next broadcast podcast video cast love to lol and Jeanette I am listening <laughs>